I'm now going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, this is also our sermon Bible reading, and this is really the last in our current series in 1 Samuel. Um, this brings us to just before we get the introduction of a new character, Saul, who becomes the first king of Israel, so it's kind of a good place to have a break, and we'll come back to this later. But so let's read 1 Samuel beginning at chapter 7, verse 2. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before Israel, the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines, the towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places, but he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. I'm going to pray uh, that God will give us uh, open minds and, and clear and obedient hearts and clarity as we reflect on this a bit more. And also after um, the sermon and then we sing again, there'll be a chance for any questions that might come up uh, through this passage. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, as I've said, that uh, your spirit will be so working in our hearts and minds that you will give us faith 
uh, and the obedience that comes from faith. And Father, may this be to the honour and glory of your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the big issues that the book of 1 Samuel raises for us that you might have noticed as we've been doing it throughout this series is the apparent crisis of leadership that Israel seems to be facing. Most recently, they have had corrupt leaders in their priests and they are facing a national crisis in the form of the Philistines. And big crises do tend to raise questions about leadership, don't they? Now, we've clearly seen that in the pandemic at the moment, right? I mean, how many times have you heard news articles or conversations about how this or that leader has been handling certain things during the pandemic, whether it's Scott Morrison or Gladys Berejiklian or Dan Andrews, Jacinta Ardern or Donald Trump? You know, what have they done? What have they not done? What have they done well? What have they done badly? What kind of leader have they been? The problem highlights the need for good leadership and often what kind of leader we need. And as I said, we've seen Israel with a crisis in the form of the Philistines. That's their problem. But also with a massive failure on the part of their leaders. And now those leaders are dead. But today we see a leader who God has been raising up for Israel, Samuel. Samuel has been out of the picture, you might have noticed, for the last three chapters, right through the story of the ark. We haven't heard anything of Samuel. Last time we heard about him was right at the beginning of chapter 4, but now he comes back into the story at the beginning of our chapter 7. And this is where we discover the kind of leader that Israel really need. And along the way, we're also going to get a glimpse of the kind of leader that we really need too. So the first thing that we're going to see is that the kind of leader that Israel needed leads people to real repentance. Leads people to real repentance. Chapter 7, you'll see, begins with the Ark of the Covenant sitting in an Israelite town for 20 years. So the Ark of the Covenant between God and Israel is back in Israelite territory, but you could hardly say that the covenant itself between God and Israel is doing well, that their relationship is doing well. The Ark was a symbol of that relationship, of that covenant, but having the Ark back certainly doesn't mean that everything is good in that covenant with God, any more than putting a wedding ring on says that you are married. The symbol only goes so far. What we discover right away in this chapter is that the real problem that needs to be dealt with is not the presence or the absence of the ark. The real problem is a matter of the heart of the Israelites. And what we see in these, and that's what we see in these first two verses, that Israel's hearts have been compromised. They're not serving the Lord with all their heart. They're worshipping idols, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And alongside of that description of worshipping the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and I think we're meant to realise that it means because they are worshipping the Baals and the Ashtoreths, we're discovering that the Israelites are being oppressed by the Philistines. That's what's happening for these 20 years that the Ark is sitting in Kiriath-Jerim. And after this time, Israel mourn after the Lord. They mourn for the Lord. They want to turn back to him. 
Now, mourning and grief at their, at their sin, at their relationship with God that is not good, is not the same as repentance, but it's a start. And this is where Samuel comes back into the story and he leads the people, as I said, into real repentance. Let me read from verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. That's a good, a good response. And notice that Samuel is really bringing the people back to the first two of the Ten Commandments. Did you notice that? You know, serve the Lord only. You should have only one God. That's the first commandment. And you should have no idols. That's the second commandment. But the Israelites have been breaking both of those. Now, I've got no doubt that during the 20 years that the ark was sitting in that town in Israel, Israel considered themselves to be the people of the Lord. They were the people of Yahweh. They celebrated when the ark came back into their territory. They appointed priests to look after the ark of the Lord. But their hearts were not devoted to serving the Lord only. They had other gods, the gods of the people around them, gods, idols that they worshipped alongside of the Lord. And God says that is not okay. He will not share his glory with another. They need to repent. They need to turn to the Lord with all their heart. And that's what repentance means, turning, turning to the Lord, turning away from their idols, turning away from their false gods, and turning back to the Lord to serve him only. And that's what Samuel leads them in. The Israelites put away their Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And another aspect of this repentance, you'll notice, is their newfound humility and confession of sin. Let me read verse 6. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Now we saw what it looked like when Israel's hearts uh, were turned away from the Lord, not serving him only. We saw it in the example of their corrupt leaders, those corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas, Remember their greed, especially for food, their sexual immorality, their supposed worship of the Lord was self-centred, self-indulgent gluttony. And it's entirely likely that the corruption of the leaders had filtered down into the corruption of the people, and certainly that was the case with their idolatry. But now... In their repentance, they've turned that around. They humble themselves before the Lord. They confess their sin and their fasting is an expression of that humble repentance. And notice now that with this new humility, when the Philistines attack them now, they are afraid. They're afraid of the Philistines. Let me read verse 7 and 8. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. The Israelites were afraid. And that's a good thing. Because they weren't before, 
back when they had their last battle with the Philistines back in chapter 4, they were not afraid and they were relying on their own military power and the ark of God as some kind of a weapon to help them in that campaign. And we saw how badly that went. They were slaughtered in battle and the ark was taken. But now in their humility, there is a healthy stripping away of their self-confidence. And I say healthy because what it does is it brings them to their knees before God. It helps them to see that they must rely on God. It draws them near to him. And so what we're seeing here is Samuel leading the people in real repentance. And this brings us to the second thing that Samuel does for them, that he intercedes for them with God. Effective intercession. Back in verse 5, Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. You see, Israel had so damaged their relationship with God because of their sin and their idolatry that they needed someone to intercede, to stand in the way, in the middle between them and God. And God provides that person in Samuel. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a relationship that got that bad that you needed someone to step into the middle to speak to that other person for you and maybe even to try and appease the anger of that other person for you. That's interceding. And that's what Samuel did. And in verse 9, we see what that looked like. I'll read from verse 8. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. You see, Israel needed atonement for sin. They needed God's anger against them to be appeased. And Samuel provides that in the burnt offering of the lamb. And they needed someone to cry out to the Lord on their behalf, cry out for God to rescue them. And Samuel does that. This is the kind of leader that Israel needed. Not a political genius, not a great military general to lead them in their battles. They needed someone who would call them to repentance and who would intercede with God for them. This was the leader that God provided. And so the next thing we see is that God saves. We see how effective it is. Let me read from verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near and engaged Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. See, God saves them and in quite a dramatic way, right? And you might remember if you were here through the earlier parts of the series in 1 Samuel, back in chapter 2, when Hannah prayed, she said that God raises up and protects the, the, the humble and he thunders from heaven. And that's what we see God doing literally here, thundering from heaven in such a way that it routes the army. I mean, imagine. Can you imagine what this would have been like? I don't know if you've ever been close enough to a, a lightning strike to really feel feel the kind of, anyone been really close to a lightning strike, even if it doesn't strike you, it kind of 
feels like the shock of it runs through your body and, it, and, it, and it's really quite unsettling. Now, we don't know if that's exactly what happened here, but whatever it was, it was enough to rout the Philistine army, the army that had dominated them in the past, but now God puts them into such a panic that Israel barely have to do anything. The tables from their last encounter with the Philistines have completely turned. And after their victory, Samuel sets up a stone and calls it Ebenezer, because Ebenezer means stone of help, because he says God has helped us. He says, thus far the Lord has helped us. I don't know what our Ebenezer over here means, but if you maybe Google it during the week and see if there's any connection. But clearly, in setting up this stone Ebenezer, Samuel's kind of doing something ironic, I think, here, because you might remember that the last battle that they had with the Philistines was at a place called Ebenezer. But in that place, God provided no help for them at all. But now he has helped them in a most dramatic way. Have a look back now at the ways that God has helped Israel. He raised up a leader to bring them to repentance and to intercede for them, and now he has rescued them from their enemy. And look at the result. Peace. Verse 13, the Philistines are subdued and stop invading Israel. Israel get back from the Philistines, the towns that the Philistines had captured, and they even have peace with their other neighbours, the Amorites. And not only do they have peace, but Samuel also leads them in right living, in, in godliness. You see that from verse 15, where Samuel does kind of the circuit around Israel, judging them, which in this case seems to be helping them to live according to God's law. Repentance, restored relationship with God through intercession, salvation from God, peace, right living. Not a bad outcome for one chapter, huh? And I suspect that as we read this, we can't help but hear echoes, right, of the gospel of Jesus, of what Jesus has done for us. And Acts 3 tells us that Samuel is one of those prophets who points us towards Jesus and what he has done for us. And surely we can see that here, that Jesus is the one who calls us to real repentance, that Jesus is the one who intercedes with God for us, and that because of Jesus interceding for us, God saves us and we have peace. And he calls for us to live the godly life that he has saved us for. So I thought I'd just finish now by drilling down a bit into a couple of the ways that what the Israelites experienced echoes in our lives. The first is turning from idols. Uh, one of the things we saw was the, the Israelites turning from their idols. That was their real repentance. And remember that for the Israelites, repenting was not turning to God instead of their idols. It was about not having God alongside their idols. All that time, they still considered themselves to be the people of the Lord, but they had God and idols. They had hearts that were divided. They said that they worshipped and served the Lord, but in their day-to-day -day life, they actually looked to their idols for the good things that they wanted in life. Now, we think of idols as those physical kind of shiny statues or made of metal or, or maybe wood that they worshipped and made sacrifices to, and that's what they were. 
But they're also more than that. Baal and Ashtoreth were seen as the gods of fertility, rain, love, and war. They're quite a portfolio between them. And having these idols was how they thought they would get the things that those represented, the good things in life that they wanted, the prosperity in, in, in work, in, in farming, victory in war, success in relationships, in love, in family life, in children. Now, of course, we would never do that, would we? In our modern, enlightened way of thinking, we wouldn't have idols like that, serving the Lord on one hand, but at the same time, sacrificing and living for the good things that we really want in life. The New Testament tells us that greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. It's not a physical statue made of wood or, or um, metal, but it can control our hearts. It promises much. It demands great sacrifice, all the characteristics of an idol, and you could put that same label of idolatry on other things that promise much, that demand sacrifice and that control our hearts, our joys and our anxieties. Amb ambition and success, whether it is financially or in work, in, in sport, in music, in whatever it is that we value. Reputation, amongst others. We can idolise health. We can idolise love and relationships, family, marriage, children, friendships. We can idolise pleasure and holidays. Are those idols for you? Are they what, make, what you make sacrifices for? The things that end up controlling your joy or maybe your anxiety? Are they end up what dictates your decisions so that I'll make my decisions around those priorities rather than the priority of serving the Lord and seeking first his kingdom. And I know I've had plenty of times, plenty of situations, plenty of things where I've been forced to acknowledge and confront an idol in my life. I remember a long time ago now in, in year 12 in high school, I was becoming increasingly keen on playing footy and it was taking up more and more of my time, more and more of my kind of attention and ambition and the, the social aspect of it with quite an unhelpful drinking culture. Um, it, it was really running the risk of diverting me away from Jesus. I was a Christian, but it was increasingly becoming an idol for me that I was prioritising my decisions around that and making sacrifices for that. <clears throat> As it turns out, that year I had a significant injury playing footy and you could say that ended my football playing career. Not that I was destined for great things, but I haven't been able to play ever since then. And I still wake up with pain in the night because of it. But even now, even with the pain, I thank God for his graciousness in removing that idol from me. In that case, forcefully removing it. And sometimes God does it like that. Sometimes he takes it from us, takes away an idol, and that's not always comfortable. Sometimes it's painful. But all the time, God commands us to turn from our idols and serve him with our whole heart. And so repentance, turning from those idols, is essential 
for the Christian life. It's what happens when we first become a Christian. We turn from wherever we were going, whatever we were serving, whatever we were living for, to put our trust in Jesus and to serve the Lord. But it's also what we need to do every day, to turn from the idols that divide our loyalties. And this side of heaven, that will always be a struggle. In this way, I kind of think about living the Christian life as as being like trying to paddle a kayak upstream. I don't know if you've done any kayaking, but I've done a little bit of it, and I've noticed that when you try and paddle it upstream, the current keeps trying to turn you back the other way. And it requires constant effort and attention to correct your course to go the way that you're supposed to be going. And in that way, I think it is like the Christian life. This side of heaven, we expect that it will require constant effort and attention to correct our course, to turn from our idols. This is why that kind of self-examination, confession and repentance is a key part of the Christian life, to be really honest with ourselves and with God about how we have not loved him with our whole heart. Well, we have loved and served the created things rather than the creator who graciously gives them to us. And when we recognise this, sometimes it's a big thing, sometimes it's, it's, it's a little thing, it should give us a real humility like it did for the Israelites. It brings us low before God. But at the same time, in bringing us low, it brings us closer to God because it makes us realise that we have to rely all the more on the one who intercedes for us, on Jesus. The humility, you remember, and even the fear of the Israelites was a good thing because it stripped away their self-confidence. And that's true for us too. And some advice that I remember hearing a long time ago that I often give to people when we are confronted with our recognition of our sin, of an idol in our life, of how we're not serving the Lord with our whole heart, when, when we're brought low by that, when we are humbled by that, the gravity of it, the advice that I give to people is use that. Use that humility. Use it to draw you closer to Jesus. Let that humility bring you to the foot of the cross where Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice on our behalf and who does now stand ready to intercede with us before the Father. See, it can be a good thing when God brings us low, when he confronts us with our sin, when he humbles us, even if it's not fun, because it, it turns the relationship around from me going about my life and just calling on God when I need him to me falling on my knees before God and saying, Lord, forgive me, change me. And we can know with absolute confidence that God hears and answers that prayer because we have one who intercedes for us. And part of that answered prayer is the new life of godliness that he calls us to live. Part of using that lowness and that humility is the resolve that can come with that to now live a changed life. Jesus brings salvation 
and he leads us into the new life that he calls us to live, that he has saved us for. You can't have one without the other. And what a blessing it was when God did this, did this for Israel. If you'd asked, I reckon, if you'd asked Israel back before this case, when they were being harassed by the Philistines, what it was that they really needed, what kind of leader particularly that they needed, what would they have said? Someone to fight our battles for us, right? But clearly that was not the answer. They needed someone to lead them in repentance. They needed someone to intercede with God for them. They needed someone to lead them to the salvation and the new life that God gives. That's what God provided for them in Samuel. And how much more has he provided that for us in Jesus? Let's give thanks that he has. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks that you have provided what we need in Jesus. That Jesus does call us to repentance and intercedes for us on our behalf with you. And Father, we thank you that we can have great confidence of the salvation that you have given us because of that. Father, may we trust in that all the more. And Father, may you lead us to the new life that you have saved us for. Father, please help us to constantly be turning from those idols that we have in our lives to serve you only. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.